This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Chris Murray is on the move. The now former city manager for the city of Hamilton is uh, heading down the QEW to uh, be the city manager for the city of Toronto in uh, what was a surprise move to many. Chris Murray joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Chris, how are you doing today? Good. How are you doing, Bill? Well, the dust is starting to settle, and, and uh, we're starting to get an idea as to what's going on. Uh, I guess the obvious question is here, why the move? Uh, you know, there's never a great time for uh, these kinds of decisions, uh, but uh, there's really kind of two things, I think, professionally and personally. Uh, certainly in my personal life, uh, you know, our kids are now both off the university, and so that, that certainly was part of it. Uh, but professionally... You know, if you go back in the very beginning when I I started as city manager, I'd said I was going to do really three things, and um, and I think I've accomplished them. And, and so, you know, now's uh, the time that I think I can move on. And those three things were, of course, you know, building a, a good relationship with the mayor and council, and, and, of course, with that, also building a good relationship with our, our staff, so our leadership and our frontline our front workers. And... Uh, and of course, major institutions in this community that you know we've been working well together for some time. And then the last thing was really about priorities. And uh, you know, certainly I'm a planner by profession, and I love how cities are, are built or get built. So there's lots happening here. So I'm thrilled that we were able to you know take advantage of a market that is you know starting to shine its light on us. And so we've been doing a good job of that. Um, and then, but the part that probably matters the most to me, and and we've we've put a lot of effort into it, was trying to change the culture. And uh, we started that journey about six years ago, and and today, you know, it's we're hiring leaders on the basis of of the kind of organization that we want. You know, empowering our staff and engaging them, and and expecting them to deliver services well. And uh, and with that, we also measure how well we perform, and and as well we. We have programs for continuous improvement. So these are all things that are well underway. And uh, and so, you know, I feel that, you know, I've, I've accomplished um, a lot of the things I'd hoped to, I dreamt of. Um, and I think, Bill, 30 years ago, someone said to me, you know, you're going to be city manager uh, in, uh, you know, one of the largest cities in the country, Hamilton. Um you know, I would have uh, thought, yeah, well, I'm sure you'll be legalizing pot at the same time. So, but strangely enough, <laughs> there you go. You know. Well, as you check those boxes, Chris, uh, and and I know you've talked to us about this many times over the years since I've gone to, come to know you many many years ago. Uh, with that in mind, and with that check here, check here, check here, were you looking for something new then? Another challenge? Yeah, I mean, I've always, you know, and I, I think people often think, you know, you you go after positions and you go after money and and uh, I get why people think that way, but uh, I think, you know, the way I know I work and what I what I enjoy is, you know, challenges. And uh, I'm not suggesting for a second there aren't still many, many good challenges here in Hamilton. Of course, there are. Um, but, you know, I, I think, you know, there's a point in which, you know, you look at what you what you set out to do and ask yourself, did you do it? And uh, And then, you know, you're at that point in your life where you think, you know, I either just continue doing this or I, I take on something that will catch my breath and and cause me good stress and uh, get to work with, uh, you know, more incredible public servants, which if, if I have one, it is about culture and performance, but uh, I just I just so fundamentally believe that people don't uh, appreciate maybe fully how good uh, the civil service is and how, how good the civil service can be. And, um, and that's the thing that is just, that's the best part of the job. So it's, you know, this will sound humble, but it's not intended to be at all. It's like I do work with so many good people. I have a, a phenomenal uh, leadership team. I just came from my corporate leadership group, which is all of our, our directors and general managers, and uh, we're talking today about business acumen. That's what we're talking about. And uh, and people expect value for their tax dollars, and that's really what we're focused. That's not to me a political thing. I know some people paint it as right wing or left wing or whatever, and I go, I, I you know, I was born to two depression era parents that were born in the twenties. Poverty to them was normal because no one had any money, you know, in Shediac and Melrose, New Brunswick. I mean, you were poor, and uh, so those values are 
are so fundamental in, in the way I kind of look at the world, and, and it's no different than a number of the people that are on my leadership team. You know, we're pretty practical people, and, you know, we we look at, you've been elected official, Bill, and we know how hard it is to be an elected official, you know, Saturday morning at a grocery store. Someone comes up to you, the chances of them saying something nice to you is pretty slim. Well, that's, that's uh, the, the, yeah, the, the, the trials and tribulations of public life. I mean, he, Hamilton yeah. is, is a, a, a small town that got real big, obviously, and we're proud of that. And, yeah. But you're right. I mean, you can't go anywhere. People know who Chris Marie is, and, and they will stop you and say, hey, what about this LRT? So, uh, and that may yeah. well happen in Toronto as well. But there's a, there's a yeah. trend here. I know with some of the reaction we got yesterday when the, the announcement was made, Chris, was, uh, hey, what's going on here? It seems like the brightest and the best from Hamilton are getting picked up by other folks. And and the other name that came up, obviously, was Rob Rossini, who was, a, uh, I think, one of the best finance managers the city's ever had. And, of course, he went to Toronto, uh, since retired now. Uh, and but, but I look at this as almost a compliment. I mean, it means that, hey, there's, there's some pretty good talent here that other people are looking for when they're trying to fill positions. Well, and I'll tell you right now, the interview... Uh, the questions that were being asked were questions that were, I, I can say, relatively easy to answer because it's work we're doing here, you know. I mean, when you talk to me about modernizing government, you know, my answer to that is, yes, it's about technology, but it's about culture. It's about performance. It's, it is all about value for money, and it's about continuous. All these, these are all things that I wasn't talking theoretically. It's what we're doing. And so, but you know how you mentioned, you know, people going to Toronto. I, I can just tell you that we hired a director of transportation and parking, and his name is Brian Hollingsworth. If you're in the transportation field in Canada, that name is huge. <laughs> He's working for us now. He left IBI as a, as a consultant to come here because of the really interesting things we're doing. I mean, Brian is a complete streets, you know, he's a, he's a mobility expert that is, has done work all over the world. He's here, okay? So, you know, and I, I, I look at Jason Thorne, and I think, you know, Jason's a pretty special person. And as, as much as I love Rossini, and Rob, if he's listening, he knows how much I appreciate him, Mike Zagarek is, is pretty damn wonderful uh, as our corporate services and finance. And Paul Johnson, all of you know who he mm-hmm. is. And Dan McKinnon had been hitting it out of the park in water, wastewater. So... I, I look at that and I go, man, don't underestimate them because um, you know, uh, you know, I'm I'm incredibly uh, proud of of who they are and how good they are. And then there's, you know, and then I I, I get a wonderful uh, email from uh, Sandra Walker, you know, our head of five one six seven, and uh, I got nothing but respect for her. She's such an incredible leader and. Uh, and then all these, you know, all of our great frontline workers. And, and I'm not just, I'm not trying to be kind or nice here. And why are you leaving going, then? It sounds like you've got an all-star team here. I do have an all-star team. <laughs> no, I, I, I understand but, that. And, and you have to look at things and, and perspective and, and life goals and all these sorts of things. And and, yeah. and I know one of the, the things that you wanted to do when you became city manager was to create this this line of ascendancy. And we've seen that happen with people like Mike Zagarek and others that have moved into to top management yeah. positions. Let me ask yeah. you about personalities, though, Chris. I mean, as, sure. as you look back on this right now... Uh, there's always supposed to be some sort of a strong relationship between the city manager and, and city council. And the head of that, of course, is the mayor of the city of Hamilton. Uh, you've, you've had to butt heads with the mayors in your time here. Uh, it, it hasn't been spectacular like it has in some other cities. But, but you know, there's been some friction from time to time. Is that a factor in your decision to say it's maybe time to move on? No. I, no. God, no. <laughs> it's uh, not at all. Uh you know, I, I would say in the early days, I, I didn't really understand how working, you know, basically, you know, uh, every day with, and it's not just the mayor. I mean, it, it's all elected officials. I mean, you know, uh, I mean, each is one vote at the end of the day, and each has a set of interests that they're trying to address. And so I have, I try to establish relationships with each one of them. And, uh, and you know, and of course, the mayor has a, a very unique position. And, uh you know, but you know what? I mean, if, if there aren't disagreements and it's like where they occur and how they occur, you know, uh, that's important. And I think, you know, I think that constructive conversation is so critical. I don't know how you get better uh, unless there is that little bit of, you know, uh, back and forth. And, and yeah, well, sure, we've had that. And, 
you know, anyone listening, I mean, I mean, honestly, when you've never had a disagreement with someone, you know, I just, at the end of the day, when, when council makes a decision, uh, we all, we all respect it and we deliver it. And, uh, I love that, you know, and, uh, you know, and so, yeah, of course, but that, in terms of why I'm making this decision, I mean, if anyone honestly thinks that, you know, I, I would really hope I can dispel that. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's the, it's the, uh, to some extent, the unknown, I guess. And the, you know, I mean, Toronto's challenges are, are not unlike ours. I mean, they're battling with affordable housing. They're battling with mobility. And they're battling with the, uh, with a modernizing government, I mean, these are all things that uh, I think I understand, and, and we're making some progress on. So, you know, and it's like, wow, I, you know, they don't. I don't think they've had the conversation like we've had about culture. You know, I would love in four years, you know, from now, and I think in terms of terms of council, always, uh, I would love that the thirty-five thousand people. Uh, you know that yeah, there's someone called a you know a city manager, and oh yeah, it's uh, that guy. <laughs> They, you know, they might actually, you know, know me because I'm I'm going to do my best to reach out to them and uh, and respect them and tell them that uh, they're doing great things and make sure that uh, their work aligns to what we're trying to accomplish and it's done well. And if it's not done well, well, we better fix that. Uh, lots of time for reflection, I guess, and, and, and I can hardly wait for the book you're going to write about your time here in Hamilton. Huh. <laughs> yeah. But but listen, let's, let's look forward here. I mean, uh, Toronto... Uh, daunting task, lots of challenges there, uh, uh, lots of, uh, uh, you talk about transit issues with our LRT here at Hamilton, I mean, the, multiply that times 10 with what's going on in Toronto right now, you're you're heading into the deep end of the pool here, and there's probably sharks in there, Chris. Yeah, and, and, and I think, you know, I mean, some people, you know, think of it as a war between, you know, the various, you know, uh, uh, you know, features on a road, whether it be a car, a transit vehicle, or a bike, or a walking, or whatever like that. I mean, you know, wars aren't aren't a good thing. Uh, I don't believe in wars. I I believe in, you know, in council approving plans and us executing them. So, I mean, there's always going to be disagreement one way or another, and and we have to respect that. Um, but you know, they have a plan, and uh, you know, there are you know a number of elements to it, and and we're going to we're going to get out there and we're going to deliver it. I mean, you know, Toronto's 2.8 million people and in the next 20 years it's going to grow by another million. You know, 3.8 million people will will live in Toronto. It could even be more. Um, you know, how you, you know, how you accommodate that? Well, I mean, they're they're doing it. I mean, it's intensification in the right place with the right way and supporting it with the right transportation. So, I mean, I get that. That's you know, that's kind of for an urban planner. That's a breathe in, breathe out moment. It's it's not complicated. Um, how you get it delivered, the money it costs. I mean, those are massive challenges. But you know, I've I've always said this though too, Bill. Like you know, as much as I think people think, oh, that's Toronto and this is Hamilton, and all this. The the truth is about the market and the uh, our economy is like we are a very large economic region, and we're part of it. You know, you can't deny Hamilton is part of this large Southern Ontario economic region. Well, we just had that discussion earlier this week, didn't we, at the uh, at the summit uh, at their RBG. Uh, yeah. And we're actually talking to the head of the Board of Trade there, Jan De Silva from Toronto, who made that very point in, in her comments and when she appeared on the show. So there's a, there's a bond here. I know that, that a lot of people in this town look at Toronto as Hogtown or this and that, and that's, you know, Argo suck and everything like that. And by the way, you better not start wearing double blue. But uh, but over and above that, there's there's a connection between these two cities right now, whether you like it or not. And I think that's a good thing, really. Always has been. Yep. And, uh, you know, whatever the competition is, you know, the uh, funny thing about money, it moves where it wants to. And uh, increasingly, we know that businesses move to where people want to live, you know. And, uh, you know, that's what Hamilton's been taking advantage of. People want to live here. Why? There's a whole bunch of good reasons for that, you know. And uh, you know, I, I thought Saturday night uh, the Eric Cal's concert. I mean, you know, that was that was Hamilton in its Sunday's best. You know, twenty <laughs> some people enjoying a hometown band and, and loving it. And uh, you know, I mean, that's those are the kinds of things that you know people really kind of uh, relate to and uh, you know love their football team and uh, you know and but love a lot of other things that are going on here. So. You know, I think that's why Toronto wants to make sure that its housing issues are are not ignored. And, of course, they're not. They're doing everything that they can to kind of get, the, you know, that person that uh, actually is making sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000 a year, that there is a place for them to live 
and it's they don't necessarily have to commute you know an hour or two each day so yeah, well, these are important topics. Well, all of them are, and, and there's a lot of work to be done on this, and uh, it's, it's it's certainly a time of change. There's a municipal election coming up. Uh, Hamilton yep. has to find a replacement for you. I, I would love to finish this off with a list of accolades about what a great job you've done, but I think all you have to do is look at social media, Chris, the people that have responded and the, the very positive things they've said about your contribution, and, and, and I hope you take that to the bank. I know you're not you're not cutting ties with Hamilton here. I know, but, uh, no. but obviously that's where the job's going to go, and, and we wish you all the best. I know we'll talk a lot more about some of these key issues uh, down the road, but for now, uh, take, the, take the rest of the hour off, okay? <laughs> Thanks, Bill. Thanks. I, I love, I, I got to say, the, you know, the media, I think, has always been incredibly fair, uh, critical where it should be critical. People rely on you, and, you know, and, and this is Hamilton for you. And and they'll give you compliments when when they think you deserve it. So uh, that's what I've always respected about you, and and uh, you know the way I've been treated. So well, that's uh, that's what that's the tone that I'm hearing around social media too about the work you've done. Thanks again, Chris, and and good luck in uh, your new endeavor. Appreciate the time today. Thanks very much, Bill. Take care, Chris Murray, uh, outgoing manager for the city of Hamilton, of course, and uh, heading down the road to Toronto to do the same job. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM nine hundred CHML. Still a lot of reaction, obviously, as you've heard on CHML News about the uh, verdict yesterday in the Cahill murder trial, which uh, actually came out rather unexpectedly, I think, in a lot of people's minds. Uh, we're going to cover this from a couple of angles. Uh, the uh, uh, defense attorney, a uh, defense lawyer for the uh, accused, of course, well, now for Mr. Cahill, uh, Jeff Manishin is going to join us in just a little while. But I want to bring Susan Claremont into the conversation. She, of course, is the award-winning uh, journalist and uh, columnist with the Hamilton Spectator who was there covering the trial. Susan, actually, 24 hours ago, we were supposed to do this, and then bingo, you got the word <laughs> that the jury was coming in. So, Yes, uh, sorry about that. I had to bail on you. <laughs> well, that's that's the job, right? And, and I'm glad you're able to do that. Uh, you tweeted it, and we got that on there, so we got into this. Uh, which, which leads me to the first question. Were you surprised at how soon the jury came back? Um, yeah, maybe a little bit surprised. Uh, the trial lasted two weeks. There was a lot of material to cover. Uh, there was a fairly complicated decision tree that the uh, jurors were supposed to work their way through to come to the proper verdict. Uh, so that was a lot to to do, and they were only out for, in total, about six hours. Uh, and, and the verdict itself was surprised to you based on what you saw in the court? Uh, you know, that's a tough one because... Um, uh, Jeff Manishin, who you're going to be talking to shortly, did a fantastic job of, of representing his client. He's a, a very skilled lawyer. Um, the Crown team were fantastic and uh, particularly a very, very strong closing argument that they made to the jury. Um, and, you know, just judging by sort of the reaction and the comments on social media over the last couple of weeks, it was it was very divisive. I mean, it was it could have gone either way. I think. Talk to us about the scene in the courtroom when the verdict came down. I know you wrote that about that today, uh, and uh, it was too, as you expected it was going to be. It was it was very emotional on both sides. Absolutely, it. Uh, you know this. This trial is about so many things. It's first and foremost about. Um, the death of John Stiers, who left behind a family who loved him very much and, and two young children. Um, but it was also about so much more than that. It was about politics. It was about uh, race. It was about um, our justice system. And all of that was very close to the surface when the when the verdict came in. Um, on the Cahill side of the family, uh, Peter Cahill himself, just kind of sighed, took a big deep breath and uh, looked up sort of towards the ceiling when the verdict came in, like just relief washing over him. His wife, who is six months pregnant, um, burst into tears and um, her mom uh, put her arms around her and, and the wife was just sobbing. Um, on the Styers side of the family, the, the mother of John's children, who has been um, very emotional a couple of times during the trial, uh, just let out this this wail and um, was beside herself and had to be almost carried out of the courtroom by family members. And then um, we could hear her, even when she was out in the hallway, uh, almost screaming in, in distress. Um, 
And and there were security issues during the verdict as well. There often are at a high-profile murder trial. When the verdict comes down, there's always extra security. But it was heightened in this case by the fact that there had been an incident in the hallway a few days before and um, some, some real concern on the part of police and, and the security officers at the court for Cahill's safety. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about yesterday before we knew the verdict was going to come down was, was the piece you wrote for The Spectator yesterday. It was uh, as the jury was deliberating, you talked about the things that the jury didn't see. Right. Uh, and there were some rather uh, important things, I thought anyway, that, that were presented. And maybe the most important of those uh, that, the things that you talked about there, Susan, was, was the video of the, uh, the police uh, in- investigation and the police interview with uh, Cahill. Uh, which uh, the judge ruled uh, was not going to be seen by the jury. Talk to us about that and the impact that may have had. Right. So uh, I did see the video, although the jury didn't. And it's a long um, video, several hours, um, uh, done just hours after Cahill was arrested. Um, You know, the thing that struck me the most about it, the story that he tells, um, the scenario that he gives, is very, very similar to what he eventually said on the stand when he testified at his trial. Um, So that doesn't change very much at all, if at all. Um, But it's his demeanor. It was so different. So when Cahill testified, and and throughout his entire trial as he was sitting in the courtroom, he was... um, he was calm. He was collected. You know, we, we always saw him at the trial in a suit and tie. Um, he was well-mannered on the stand. Even when the Crown was was really aggressively cross-examining him and, and in some cases calling him a liar, um, Cahill kept his composure and was, was very respectful. Um, so he came across as, as this guy always in control. When I saw the video, whole different, different scenario, whole different side of Peter Cahill. He was very, very upset, very emotional. He cried throughout the video, at times sobbing so hard that he couldn't really catch his breath, um, couldn't really speak. He was, um, you know, wiping tears off his face, blowing his nose. Um, you know, when he when the interview's finally over and he's leaving, he actually grabs the box of Kleenex and and sort of says, "I might need this." So it it just made me wonder, you know, what was he like when he ran out? with the shotgun that night. You know, we only have really seen him as this composed guy, but I don't know. I mean, clearly there are times in his life when he is not in control of his emotions. And that, that, as notwithstanding that description and, and your assessment of what you saw in the video, though, Susan, uh, as you explained in the piece yesterday, the, the judge ruled uh, this inadmissible, not so much because of the demeanor concept, but really more about the way that the police handled the interview. Right. Um, the, the question turned on, the issue turned on um, how voluntary that statement was that Cahill gave. Um, he says repeatedly throughout the interview, um, in, the, in the first stages of the interview, that he doesn't want to talk on the advice of a lawyer. He, he has contacted a lawyer. In fact, he talks to the lawyer a couple of times and uh, says that he's been told not to talk. And, of course, it's, it's a good detective's job to encourage, you know, an accused to talk. That's mm-hmm. what police do. Um, but there was also confusion, and, and this is the point that um, Justice Glithero made in, in his ruling, there was the, um, an issue about what he was actually charged with. When Cahill was first arrested at the scene and put in the back of a cruiser, he was told that he was being arrested for attempt murder. Not very long after that, a police officer comes and tells him that he's now charged with murder because they have learned that Styers is, in fact, dead. So he comes to the police station Police have discussions, homicide unit has discussions about the charge and, and, you know, the upcoming interview that they're going to do with Cahill. And they reach out to an assistant Crown attorney for some advice on the charge. And the 
Crown Attorney says, I think you've got enough to go with first-degree murder. So at the beginning of the interview, Cahill is told, you know, you're, you're charged with first-degree murder. And that's used to, to leverage um, him into talking. You know, you've got, you've got nothing to lose here, everything to gain kind of thing. You're charged with the most serious offense there is. Tell us your side of the story. And he eventually talks. At the end of the interview, he's told that based on what he has said, that they're dropping the charge down to second-degree murder, which is, in fact, what he went on trial for. Mm -hmm. So the concern of the judge was that there was some kind of an inducement, that he talked um, because he he was charged with first-degree murder and, you know, some question about whether he was manipulated um, somehow into his, his statement to police. Any chance that there actually could be an appeal to this decision? I don't know. Um, yes, uh, I guess, yes, there could be an appeal. Will there be an appeal? I don't know. The The Crown attorneys um, did not speak to the media yesterday, so we have not heard it from them. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, there there is the possibility that that could happen. They have... Uh, you know, a limited amount of time to make that decision and make the application. Very emotional past couple of weeks, not just for the families and the people involved, but I think for this whole community, as you mentioned, because of many of the subtext of this thing and and your usual outstanding job of, of reporting and letting us know what's happening for the, the, the whole trial, really, and, of course, especially the last 24 hours. Susan, thanks as always. Great to have you on the show today. Thanks so much, Phil. Susan Claremont, of course, award-winning uh, journalist and uh, columnist with the Hamilton Spectator. Jeff Manishin uh, was the uh, defense uh, for the uh, trial, of course, for Peter Cahill. Uh, he joins us on the Bill Keller Show to uh, talk about uh, as much as we can talk about through this. Jeff, thank you so much for the time. I know it's been a busy couple of weeks for you. It sure has, Bill. Thank you. Uh, interesting twist on, on how this actually came about. Uh, I mean, I could ask you what you thought of the verdict, because, I mean, that was your goal all along, obviously, to get uh, a not guilty verdict in this. But the, the, the way in which you fashioned the defense, I thought, was rather interesting. Uh, an awful lot of people that only had a cursory knowledge of what may have gone on that night, uh, Jeff, assumed that this was a story of a guy who saw somebody breaking into his truck and they didn't want him to steal the truck, and, and what happened happened as in the ensuing moments. But you looked at this as, uh, and, and the way that you were talking about this through the course of the trial, this was not about a truck. This was about a man who thought that he was in danger. Yeah, and, you know, one's first impression is certainly understandable to say, gee, you have a truck being broken into, a guy comes out and shoots him. So you say, it's pretty easy. But then you go back and you take a look at what my guy said, what Mr. Cahill said on the 911 call to the first officer at the scene, and it didn't mention the truck really at all in the sense of him trying to protect his own property. And then you develop it further, and, Bill, I, it's not really me fashioning the defense. It arises from what I knew his evidence to be, and part of what his evidence was what he said at the very first opportunity to tell anybody. Which, and, but as the evidence developed, he, he, at trial he indicated he went outside with uh, safety on the gun, the gun pointing down. And his military training was to basically confront the guy, disarm him, and detain him. And so he was acting in accordance with the military training. We know he went outside. He didn't want to wait. He didn't want to wait and see what would happen. That's not the soldier's training way. You be proactive. You get out there and you basically neutralize the threat. You don't wait and see what's going to happen. You get control of the situation. So that's all he had in mind to do. Very dark. When, as he said, the guy turned, and it, it appeared to him the guy, the guy's hands and arms were together, moving up to or up to, were at, you know, waist tight in a manner that, from his training, was this guy's got a gun. It was only then, it was only then, and because of that, that he reacted with deadly force. And again, the training is: look, if there's no time to do anything else, you know, you have to defend yourself. Did you have any indication? I know the uh, the jury asked for questions once uh, through the course, but uh, is, is the reporting that I saw about this, uh, you were, I don't want to know if the word pleased is right, but I mean encouraged by the fact that the question they asked seemed to be along the lines of, of what you had been talking about through the course of the trial about reasonable uh, reaction to a, to a circumstance. Sure, and remember, too, it isn't only me. It's what the judge told them as yeah, a matter of yeah. law. But on the other hand, did I believe that that was a central feature in the case? Absolutely. 
the section of the criminal code that provides for how to deal with the question of was were the guy's actions reasonable. So this is assuming that the the other individual made a threat, applied force, did something which prompted the person to be afraid. B that the person used force to defend himself or herself. But then C were those actions reasonable? It takes into consideration a whole host of relevant circumstances. The code has a bunch of factors, but a big one is for me the relevant circumstances of the person. Well, here, again, right from the beginning, he said, I'm a soldier. That's how I was trained. So it made him being a soldier and that training part of the relevant circumstances for him. So the jury question of, is the reasonable person, and you know, Bill, we use that phrase lots in court. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's an objective test, the reasonable person. The, Brit- the, Eng- the English called the reasonable man on the Clapham omnibus. Okay, so they asked the question, the reasonable person, you know, just in general, or is it limited to the circumstances here? And, of course, the answer is the reasonable person in those circumstances with those attributes. So it, it almost becomes the reasonable person with some military training at 3 o'clock in the morning, faced with a dark you know, a scenario as he was faced with his age and you know, gender and so forth. How would that reasonable person with that background and those circumstances behave and were those actions reasonable in those circumstances? And remember, and this is a tough concept for everybody to get their head around, the Crown has to prove they were unreasonable. The Crown has to prove the actions were unreasonable and prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. The burden isn't on me. The burden's on the Crown. So how do you get your head around proving a negative beyond a reasonable doubt? You basically say the Crown has to show you this was not a case of self-defense. This was a, well, any murder trial, I guess, Jeffries, is a daunting task because of the tragedy of a lost life and, and the circumstances around that. But as we were just talking about with Susan Claremont, I know that as, and as you and, and the Crown were painfully aware, there were many subtexts to this whole story in this situation, uh, some of them uh, to, to do with, with ethnicity, some of them to do with the justice system itself, etc. How heavily does that weigh on you once the trial starts? Did you just set that aside? or I know you talked about it with the judge and with the Crown as jury selection was going on, but is it over and done with then, or is it hanging over this whole trial? Well, I have to tell you, Bill, having followed other cases and having seen the reaction of the Indigenous community to other cases, I certainly felt for this trial I want to have the trial conducted in such a way that they would feel reassured that race did not play a, a factor in this case. I thought that was really important for everybody. So the issue of a potential challenge for cause to be able to ask each prospective juror, would your ability to decide the case fairly and impartially be affected by the fact that the accused is white, the deceased is indigenous, that challenge for cause procedure. And I can tell you that for African Canadians, it's standard. That question is, you, don't, you just put in the application, you get to ask it. It has been done in other cases with indigenous accused or deceased, but it's not done that often, and it's not that commonly known. As a matter of fact, you and I had a conversation some months ago about possible judicial reform, and there was, uh, at least in, in some corners, people that were saying, look, this challenge for cause is a waste of time. It shouldn't even be around. Uh, and here we are talking about your usage of that and, and how effective that may have been in this trial. Well, actually, to clarify, Bill, out of the Bushy case, there was concern that the defense counsel used peremptory challenges, just challenge in a way to be able to prevent indigenous yeah. jurors from being on the jury or not. The issue of challenge for cause wasn't something that was ever talked about being done away with, but the challenge for cause, I don't believe, was done there. Well, there's case law, not a lot of it, but I'm talking about trial level and Supreme Court and Court of Appeal where they say, look, we can pretty much take judicial notice that issues of racial bias in relation to indigenous people could really potentially play a part in a trial. And so it would be a good practice to ask potential jurors that question. So, Bill, when that came up, and on my client's behalf, we absolutely agreed with that. But then in my jury address, I, I felt it would be appropriate to do something further. And I, I didn't want to wait to see what the Crown was going to say, what the judge was going to say. I put it right out there and said to the jury, race played no part in the events, because neither my client nor Mr. Stiles could see each other's race. So on the facts, not a part. But I said further, and I reminded them of the challenge for cause, I said race cannot, it must not play a part of this case. We want you to decide the case only on the evidence. Everybody, accused, deceased, family, observers, everybody who cares about the justice system, wants you to decide this case only on the evidence, and race cannot play a part of it. Now, when I put that the way I put it, and you might imagine I'm doing it in a toned-down version here, I hope they got that message, and I believe they got that message. And so when they came back and they say, look, we find the accused not guilty, I don't know what more could be done. 
to satisfy people to say, look, this was a fair trial. Don't, don't presume race. And don't presume race because you, you, potentially you didn't have the verdict turn out the way you wanted it to, and therefore it's race-based. Bill, as far as I could determine, with the limited perception I've got, as far as everything I tried to do, I tried to ensure this would not be a case in which race would be any factor at all. A uh, very emotional couple of weeks, really, uh, during the course of this trial. And, Jeff, I know it's, uh, it's been a whirlwind the last uh, 24 hours, so I really appreciate you taking some time for us this morning. Sure, Bill. Thanks for uh, calling. Take and care. Worthwhile to share the ideas. Thank you. Always, as always. Jeff yep. Manishin, of course, who uh, uh, was uh, working on the defense for uh, the uh, accused, who now has been found not guilty, Peter Cahill. We'll do a short time out, and then we're back. The Bill Kelly Show continues after this on 900 CHML. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Former Prime Minister Stephen Harper is going to have one with uh, John Bolton, who, of course, is a national security advisor for the Trump White House. Uh, It was announced uh, yesterday that uh, Mr. Harper will be making a trip to the White House next week, which uh, has got a, well, tongues wagging in Ottawa because, well, there's some protocol that's supposed to be in place when former leaders, I guess, do these sorts of things. Joining us to talk about the implications is uh, Barry Kay, who is a political science professor, of course, at Wilfrid Laurier University, specializing in Canadian and U.S. politics. Barry, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. Listen, as, as a, a, Stephen Harper as a Canadian citizen, I mean, he's free to come and go wherever he wants to do. We, we get that. But as a former prime minister, I, he seems to be thumbing his nose at protocol here. Are we reading too much into this, or is this much ado about nothing? Oh, no, this is definitely, I mean, what protocol should mean to us, perhaps is something else, because in the world south of the border, protocol has totally gone out the window, and I suspect that uh, that matter is going to travel to other countries as well. No, but without question, this is something, is, this, this is not done. Former prime ministers just do not act as uh, independent negotiators in dealing with uh, government officials of foreign countries. What it means for the future, I'm not so sure. It's not clear. Just This came as a surprise to me this morning, perhaps just as it did with you. I'm not at all sure what Harper gets out of this, other than perhaps attention. I mean, maybe he misses the limelight a bit. I don't know if that's part of the motivation. He has spoken uh, in a, a more unified way with regard to the tariff issue, which is something that is probably the main front burner issue between Canada and the United States at the moment. Goodness knows the Americans have lots of other issues with other people. But uh, on this particular matter, I'm, I'm hopeful that if there are negotiations or discussions, I don't even know, again, it doesn't, it, at first I, I gathered that he, or inferred that he was going to speak to the, the president, now I'm hearing it's with Bolton. Uh, look, I'm not sure who the president listens to about much of anything at any time, so much of this is just a matter of the, uh, his mood at the moment. Uh, Bolton certainly is an important figure, and indeed the idea of um, one more voice, a conservative-oriented voice, uh, supporting the prime minister, our prime minister, with regard to the tariff issue, certainly can't hurt. But this is uh, very much foreign territory for us. This is something that has not happened in the past. Well, let's uh, talk about the elephant in the room. Stephen Harper doesn't like Justin Trudeau very much at all, and I'm sure that it's reciprocal. Uh, and, and obviously, uh, Mr. Trudeau is in the crosshairs of Donald Trump right now. Is there a little more politics than, than policy going on here? I'm sure there's an element of that. Yeah, the uh, certainly the feelings and the animosity really between uh, Trudeau and Harper, and just the fact that uh, Trudeau beat him when, in fact, he had wanted to beat the son of Pierre Trudeau. That that certainly was uh, was important. Um, on that, I, I don't, I can't get into uh, Harper's head and say exactly what he thinks is going to happen. I have doubts that this is any of this is going to have much impact on Trump's ideas and attitudes toward us. Uh, because, in fact, Trump really doesn't seem to listen to very many people, if anybody at all. The, the, the staff around him are really there to kind of reconfirm what he already has decided, more than for him to take advice from them. And we're seeing that even with regard to his, uh, his children, uh, he, that he doesn't uh, seem to pay attention to um, Ivanka or the others, which at one time we thought might be important conduits for information. So what, what is uh, Bolton's impact, is assuming Bolton has some kind of conversation? I don't know what uh, Harper thinks he's going to get out of it. If he's going to say unifying thoughts with regard to Canadian policy on tariffs, I guess that's good. Uh, but frankly, at the end of the day, I don't think this is going to add up to a great deal of anything anyway. Well, and that's the thing that's got me scratching my head, and I'm sure a lot of other people, as we look at, at what might happen here and what might be said, though, Barry. I mean, I, I know that former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney has has spoken to Trump and others in the White House about about the NAFTA situation, but he was doing that as an emissary on behalf of the Canadian government. In other words, he was carrying the policy message down there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephen Harper is not acting as an emissary here. Nobody asked him to do this. Yeah, no, I agree. I um, look. I again. I, I, I'm I'm floored by it, but frankly, I'm floored by so much these days that this kind of takes a backseat to so many other things that are strange that are going on. 
Um, I guess what I was suggesting in my, my previous comments were that uh, whatever uh, whatever discussions there are between um, uh, Harper and, and Bolton, they probably aren't going to have a huge impact on whatever the, the, uh, the president might do at the end of the day. It can be said, as I recall, um, that when... Uh, the president was first talking about the idea of, of ending the uh, the uh, the arrangement with Iran that had been negotiated by Obama. That in fact uh, Harper was supportive, and Harper does sort of take people that say nice things about him. He does perhaps pay a little more attention to. I'm not sure he changes his policy as a result of any of that. So that may be part of the reason why Harper was able to even get an in into negotiating or into discussing whatever it is he's going to discuss with the uh, with the White House staff. Um, so there's the sense that at least Harper has is seen in a more benign light by the um, by the, the Trump White House people, but uh, it's totally irregular. I think improper, but again, my notion of what's proper and improper I don't think matters very much anymore. And it seems to be being by convention and protocol just seems to be all going out the window. Well, is this a possible uh, return to the public life to the to the spotlight for Stephen Harper? I mean, he was kind of laying in the weeds for a while, the first year or so, or, and maybe even more than that after the election. Uh, but he's he's starting to pop up here, there, and everywhere now, making comments. You mentioned about the you know, the the big front page or full page ad in the in the New York Times about the Iran uh, decision. Uh, he was just appearing at the Five Eyes panel discussion in London on Wednesday uh, as a former leader. He and Newt Gingrich and a few other notables were on that panel. Uh, so is is this uh, a guy who's trying to take his place now as a former prime minister and as a quote-unquote statesman? Uh, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, I'm not sure it's going to play really very well with regard to the Canadian government. But again, this has already been noted that indeed uh, Harper and Trudeau aren't on the best of terms anyway. I, I, I can't say exactly the, the, uh, in terms of what's motivating him. I'm sure he does appreciate being a little bit, getting more attention than he might have in the past. Um, I'm not, to what degree we as Canadians should be concerned about it, other than the fact that protocol is clearly being broken. Um, I, 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 I wish I had something pithier and more substantial to suggest, suggest to you as to what's going on. We can only speculate. My hunch is it's not going to have a great deal of impact on Trump's policy on trade with Canada or anybody else at the end of the day. Man, but when you look at the relationships between these two countries right now, which which are not great uh, because of some of the rhetoric and obviously the tariff battle that's going on here, uh, I, I agree with you totally. I don't think any meeting with Stephen Harper and John Bolton is going to make anything any better or solve anything, but could it make it worse? I don't know. Um, I, I suspect not. Um, look, one of the pithier thoughts I, I've heard of, about trying to explain Trump's behavior of cozying up to the North Koreans while insulting the Canadians, the French, the Germans, and just about everyone else who's a traditional ally, was that, in fact, Trump doesn't believe in friends or enemies. He just doesn't see things that way. Everything is transactional. That, indeed, if there's something useful in the short term, I, I, I don't quite understand what he got out of the, uh, the summit with uh, North Korean leader Kim. Um, indeed, it seems that whatever substantive gains there were and the differences there were, were all on Kim's side. Um, the fact that Kim has suggested that, in fact, he is going to not have a nuclear program, he's, that goes back 20 years. He was saying that back in the days of, of Clinton with Bush and, of course, broke his word on that. Uh, Trump has suggested that he wants to take um, Putin's word for it, that he hasn't invo- been involved in, uh, in, in interfering with the American elections, even though plenty of American organizations say there's evidence to the contrary. Uh, so, again, it just seems that we, we're dealing with a... Um, Somebody who, who's just totally independent of thought, of advice. On, 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 on t- t- talking about Trump now, he just decides at the moment and the whim, inspired by the phase of the moon or whatever, that this is what he wants to do on this particular day. He doesn't particularly now. Again, I I'm not a particular fan of the president, as I'm sure you will note from previous conversations. Mm-hmm. But um, what he says one day is totally contradicted the next day. What he says one hour sometimes is contradicted. Uh, you know, an hour later. Um, and that, indeed, to try to put an under other than the fact he doesn't have any sense of loyalty to friends or particular um, animus for enemies, or at least what have been viewed as, as traditional enemies. I don't think he got anything out of the negotiations with Kim, and particularly after he decided that the military exercises, he didn't have to do that, but that was among the concessions he made. Now there's just been announced that he's going to have a, uh, another summit with, or a summit with, um, with Putin in, uh, next month. Um, I'm, I'm just fearful of, I, I, increasingly, I see the president not so much as a, um, as a Russian agent, but as a Russian asset, somebody who has acted wittingly or not, as basically in the interests of, of, of another force. Uh, we can speculate, uh, and again, this is really not the topic you wanted to, uh, to ask me about today, 
But what, They're what all related, some, Barry. <laughs> what it is that the Russians have on him, I suspect there is something. I suspect there have been financial dealings that he doesn't want to have, uh, and maybe other matters, too. But it's, it, I can't even understand what's going on with regard to that, other than the fact that the Russians have something on him. But he clearly does not have any sense of loyalty to France or particular antipathy for those that have been have acted with hostility toward the United States in the past. Everything is just a matter of, at the moment, if he thinks he's getting something out of it, even if he isn't. I don't know what he got out of the summit with uh, Kim. I know that what Kim got out of it, he got lots of credibility, including the fact that Trump was saluting his, uh, his general, that all of which played great, I gather, on North Korean television. Um, Again, all of the, against all of this, the uh, Harper's little visit down to Washington, maybe it'll get him in the press for a little bit. Uh, I, I think this is really small potatoes. But if, you know, given the petty nature of, of some of the things Trump has said and some of the, you know, let's face it, some of the verbal shots he's taken at Trudeau uh, over the last little while, uh, are they looking at this potentially as, as a, an embarrassment to Trudeau and, hey, good on him, that's just one more arrow that we can fire his way? Uh, look, the, the big issue, and it is a big issue, are, are tariffs and its impact yeah. on the Canadian economy, and that's a really big deal. Um, if if um, Harper's visit can assist in that matter to some small degree, then it's to the good. But um, as I'm understanding the situation, I uh, this is some. I don't think um, Trudeau, or for that matter, any of the other Western leaders, because Canada isn't in the boat alone. All of the other countries, in one where it just happens, we're a bigger trading partner, and our our our, our um, exports to the United States are a bigger matter for us than most of the European countries that are involved. But everybody is involved involved in the same kind of way. They cannot just allow themselves to sort of be bowled over and um, start to appeasing the president for fear of what he's going to do next, because, in fact, they can appease him on one matter, you know, come back and shoot them at another. They have to basically retaliate in, in whatever way possible. It's hurting us. It's hurting the Americans. It's hurting everyone. Proportionately, it's probably hurting Canada more, and indeed, because of the steel industry's location in Hamilton, many of your listeners are going to undoubtedly be particularly affected by this. Mm-hmm. But to, to basically just roll over and, uh, and ask for it to be hit another time uh, by Trump based on whims is not something that, that Trudeau can do. Um, the, bad, the, the language in terms of the insults of being meek or whatever comments he made about Trudeau, I don't think matter a whole lot, in the, and I don't think Trudeau is going to be particularly affected by that. But I think Trudeau is handling it as best he can, and he's handling it as all these other countries are. And indeed, you know, it's having an effect in Canada, but it's going to be, and is, I shouldn't say going to be, it's already having an effect in the United States. Our tariffs don't kick in, our counter-tariffs don't kick in until July 1st, but the Europeans have already started. And that indeed, in a number, and the Chinese now are, 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 are lessening their uh, demand for uh, soybeans. The soybeans is one of the agricultural commodities, uh, which is most dependent upon exports to China. Uh, there are Americans, and typically in states that support Trump, like Iowa, um, that um, that are, are are being affected by this. So this is not going to have any winners. It's going to have losers. That the discussion about trade wars being good and that they're easy to win is nonsense. Is is so much of you know other things that come out of Trump's mouth. Um, if there's going to be pressure on Trump, it's not going to be our threats. It's it's going to be as a result of domestic American responses to the fact the pain that they are experiencing as a result of not just Canadian retaliation, because that hasn't even kicked in yet, but retaliation from all these other places. The, uh, the Harley-Davidson is certainly a good example. I gather there are smaller industries that don't have quite um, as much profile as Harley-Davidson that are also threatening. There's a, um, a company called the Mid-Continental Nail Company, which in fact is having its, its, um, its, its economic structure devastated because of the price of steel, because they, they make nails, they make nails in the you know, traditional sense. Um, and that, in fact, they cannot afford to go on. There's going to be more and more industries like that that are losing. If, in fact, Trump is going to have to back down at some point, it's going to be those kind of forces that are going to do it. Isn't that what fully impacted Bush when he implied, because he, he did this whole thing, yeah, too. He yeah, did the tariffs. It had nothing to do with world pressure. It was that the U.S. economy started to tank. Yeah, um, and, in fact, he backed off. And, again, we have seen, and uh, they're changing the subject slightly again with regard to the... Um, the um, incarceration of the war on children, the war of, of refugees, that, yeah. that, that, that there are circumstances under which Trump may buckle. He will claim it's a victory because he all claims everything's a victory. Um, and in some, uh, there may be some small things that can be done on the trade matter. Perhaps, in fact, they can readjust somewhat the, um, uh, the, the, the impact of the marketing boards, the, uh, the uh, supply management issues uh, in, in dairy. Perhaps in small ways, things like that can be done. Perhaps... Uh, there can be more allowance for Canadians bringing more goods across the border. Because right now, in fact, um, there are more restrictions on Canadians bringing in goods 
here than um, than Americans going the other way. There there are some concessions that can be made, but those are frankly also relatively small in the greater scheme of things. If he's starting to talk about the fact that he's going to have a 25 percent tariff on automobiles. I don't even know how all that gets managed because so much of the automobile industry, I, I'm told that indeed uh, typically any, any car has some components crossing the border between Canada and the U.S. on average about seven times because some things are made here and go to the States. Some things are made in the States that go to here before the final car is put together. I don't even know how that actually gets implemented. But that, that has a huge impact, not just in Hamilton, but, but throughout the province because the auto industry is absolutely essential to the, the running of the, uh, the Ontario economy. That is, so this really is something to be fearful about. Uh, many of the other things that we've talked about are contributing to it, but Trump just has this sense of invincibility that he can walk on water and whatever he says and does works. And we, we saw with regard to the, um, the refugee children that sometimes he is capable of backing off, even though he may not acknowledge it as such. He claimed it was his idea, I guess, at the end. Uh, but that nonetheless, we, what we can hope is that, in fact, there will be domestic American pressure on Trump that will cause him to see that the trade wars, whether it's on aluminum and steel at the moment or on the other things he's threatening, that in fact, those are losers for everybody. You get the sense, i got about a minute and a half left here, Barry, you get the sense that he even comprehends that. I, I saw the comments from the uh, the president of uh, Harley-Davidson uh, yesterday, and uh, rather cryptic comments about uh, Trump's ability to, uh, to know anything at all about the economy, and he, well, he called him a moron, which oh, I guess I pretty much encapsulizes it. But does he understand that if he puts a 25% tariff on, uh, on the auto industry, that that's going to have a, a, an impact on the U.S. auto industry as well? Facts don't seem to matter to him. It's not just about the auto industry. It's about everything. He just tends to see the world in a certain way. He surrounds himself with people that tell him what he already thinks and agrees with. That's why I'm not so sure that any of these suggestions that people generally have influence. I think he makes up his mind and then tends to listen to people or increasingly just surround himself with people that tell him what he already knows. He has been hostile to the idea of free trade for decades, I gather, because of things that have been, have been said in the past. Um, that indeed I think it's unfortunately going to have to be real pain and real suffering on the part of Americans. Yeah, I'm sure he could care less about what happens to the Canadian economy. Um, again, he's just it's the, the tactics of a bully. Um, you cannot allow a bully to prevail. You have to stand up to him, even though there are costs in Canada. And clearly, if we're moving into a trade war, as it seems, it's going to hurt us economically even more than it hurts the Americans, because they're more important to us than we are to them. But um, I think the idea of not rolling over is absolutely essential and that we should take comfort from the fact it isn't just us. Uh, ironically, of course, Canada has, a, in the last uh, year or so, has had a trade, um, the Americans have had a trade surplus. More Canadian money is going to the States than here, even on dairy, which was his original area of complaint, that indeed uh, there's much more American dairy goods coming into Canada than, than the other way. But he doesn't see that, and again, the notion of being an ignorant about facts and history and strategy, not, I mean, we can go on and talk about the Constitution, he just doesn't understand politics, he understands his gut. His gut tells him how to, how to proceed, and the people around him that he listens to are people that are agreeing with his a priori already achieved um, assumptions. Barry Kay from uh, Wilfrid Laurier University. Thanks as always, Barry. Appreciate the time. Take Bye-bye. care. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.